If you have Bibles, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we are today. And if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, which I forgot to mention were there under the seats in front of you, uh, you're welcome to use those or take those with you if you would like one or you know someone who would like one. Uh, Page 996 is where you will find um, today's text. Gaining entry uh, into the United States Military Academy at West Point is among the rarest and the most difficult accomplishments for a young person. Beginning in your junior year of high school, uh, you need not only high standardized test scores and demonstrated physical ability, you also need a nomination from a member of Congress or the Senate or even the Vice President of the United States. So each year, about 14,000 or so high school juniors begin that process. And that number then is reduced to about 4,000 who end up receiving a nomination. And that number is then reduced to 2,500 who receive a nomination and meet all academic and physical standards. And then finally, there are 1,200 students who are admitted to West Point. Even after all of that, only, I'm sorry, one in five will not make it. Only four in five, only four in five will make it. One in five will still drop out after all of that. What factors decide who will make it and who will not? As she recounts in her 2016 New York Times bestseller, Angela Duckworth set out to answer this question. And her research concluded that the primary difference between those who made it and those who did not was not talent, was not ability. All of these juniors that made it that far in the process had a lot of talent and a lot of ability. So what made the difference was, she found, a deep sense of determined direction combined with the resilience to keep on going. A deep sense of determined direction combined with the resilience to keep on going. Or in a word, the title of her book, Grit. Grit. What is grit? Synonyms include courage, backbone, strength of character or of will, moral fiber, Nerve, fortitude, toughness, resolve, tenacity, or even informally, guts. Guts. All of which are traits on display in the life of the Apostle Paul. And as we learn from his very personal, his very intimate letters to his son, his child in the faith, Timothy, traits which are necessary to finish the race of the Christian life in the face of suffering, in the face of opposition. So Christians are men and women of grit. We are men and women who are weak and fickle and fallible, no doubt. We are also, we become, through the work of God, men and women of grit. We're in 2 Timothy 3 this morning, and in some ways we need to look at 2 Timothy uh, thematically or topically. So, so far, we've considered gospel-shaped conviction, gospel-shaped ministry. Today, gospel-shaped grit. And then next week, we'll conclude this series by looking at gospel-shaped endurance or perseverance. We could actually use any of those titles in any of the weeks for any of the chapters because in all the chapters of 2 Timothy, Paul talks something about all of these things. But the key line, which we're about to read in chapter 3, which focuses our attention here on gospel-shaped grit, will come in verses 14 and 15 where Paul writes to Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Continue, or the word also could mean abide or persist. 
press on through the hardship because in order to make it in the Christian life requires grit. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Almighty and gracious Father, the true understanding of your holy word helps us to grow into the fullness of salvation you so freely offer us in Jesus. Grant to all of us now that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and grasp your holy word with all diligence and all faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Amen. Two questions. Two questions for us to consider in light of this text this morning. Why we need grit and how to get it. Why we need grit and how to get it. First, why we need grit. We need it because of the character of the present age. Whenever we read in the New Testament the phrase, the last days, our minds might immediately jump to the end times, the end of all things. And certainly that's included. But if we were to go back to Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter there in Acts 2 quotes an Old Testament prophecy about the last days commencing when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the people of God. So really, anything after Pentecost, 
when God sent his Holy Spirit to his people, anything after Pentecost is the beginning of the last days. And even though it's been nearly, nearly 2,000 years now, it remains today the last days because we are not awaiting a further revelation from God until Jesus comes again. So Jesus has accomplished salvation through his life and his death and his resurrection. God has sent his Holy Spirit. The next thing that we are waiting for is Jesus to, as we confess each week in the Apostles' Creed, to come again to judge the living and the dead. And so what Paul writes here in 2 Timothy 3 is not prophecy about the future. It's present reality. It's present reality. What is that reality? Times of difficulty. And difficulty seems to undersell it a bit, doesn't it? 19 different types of sin, types of wickedness that display the depravity of humanity follow the word difficulty. We don't have time to go into each and every one of those this morning. There might be one or two that really popped out to you for some reason. But the thread that really holds this entire list of 19 things together is love or the lack of it. Begins with lovers of self, lovers of money. And about the middle of the list it says not loving good. And then toward the very end it says lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So at the root of wickedness, at the root of all sin, at the root of all moral decay, lies humanity's disordered, misdirected love. As human beings, we are lovers. We devote ourselves to, we set our affections on, we love someone or something. We're meant to be lovers of God who, as we read together in the words of encouragement from 1 John 5, demonstrate our love by keeping the commandments of God, by walking in God's ways. When we love anything but God, self, money, pleasure, just to name a few of the the usual suspects, then this list is really just the natural outworking of that. So from the seemingly more innocuous, like being unappeasable or ungrateful or disobedient to parents, Or the seemingly more heinous things in this list, like being abusive or brutal, treachery or heartlessness. All of these things are grounded in a disordered love. And this is Timothy's reality in Ephesus in the first century. And this is our reality today in America in the 21st century. Though the specifics are different, in each and every age, in each and every generation, this is what a world in opposition to God looks like. Because all of it is the last days. The chapter begins with a call to understand this. Understand, Paul is saying, Timothy, understand this is what the world is going to look like. And if you remember from last week, the end of chapter 2, Paul has just held out some hope that some of these false teachers, some of the opponents of the gospel would repent. They would come to a knowledge of the truth. But immediately after offering up that hope, which is a genuine and sincere hope, Paul then balances it out by saying, but don't be naive. Don't be naive. Depravity of humanity isn't just going to magically disappear. Though we have hope that opponents of God will repent and believe, and no doubt some of them will because such were some of us, this evil is going to be what characterizes reality until Jesus returns. What a line to walk. What a line to walk for Timothy, 
for you and me. Have hope, but be realistic. Be patient and gentle with opponents, like he said at the end of chapter 2, but verse 5, avoid some of them. And specifically, those who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. The most dangerous opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ are not those who overtly reject faith in the things of God. It's those who appear to embrace Jesus but who in actuality refuse to be changed by him. Who present themselves as faithful to God but who remain entrenched in various forms of evil like the 19 things listed here. So God forbid that you and I ever stop being transformed by the power of God. That the Christian faith becomes for any of us merely our religion of choice rather than the ongoing pursuit of repentance and renewal and being reshaped into the very image of Jesus. And as we ask God to search us and to know us and to expose our sin, especially in this Lenten season, as Steve drew our attention to earlier, let this list be a helpful aid. Because it's not just the world out there, it's each of us who are inclined to have disordered, misdirected love and to in turn live out forms of the depravity on this list. And so use this in your prayers and in your repentance and take these things before God. God, am I arrogant? God, do I lack self-control? Am I ungrateful? Am I unappeasable? Am I slanderous? Ask God to forgive you for where you see the seeds of these things in your own life. Ask God to transform you so that, so that godliness for you is never just an outward appearance, but really is the reality of your life. Now, of course, these evils don't just affect those of us who perpetrate them. They, they wreak havoc on other people. And one specific example that Paul points our attention to is how opponents of the gospel will prey upon vulnerable women. What is it that makes them vulnerable? Paul says they are burdened by sins and led away by various passions. They are, they're so immersed in a sense of guilt about what's going on in their life at that moment that they've become especially susceptible to believe lies. Or as one commentator put it, it's so unbearable that any solution offered is clutched at. And into this vulnerability, opponents of the gospel creep. The word has the sense of worming their way in. They worm their way in in those vulnerable moments. Back in 1 Timothy, um, Paul wrote about a particularly vulnerable group that was young widows, if you remember that. And perhaps he has the same group of people in mind here, but this kind of vulnerability is not limited to widows or to women. When we become aware of sin in our lives, we become sensitive to it. We, when we start to perceive things like these 19 things in 2 Timothy 3, we are then in that moment vulnerable. Because if we're overwhelmed by recognizing the sin in our lives, anything sounds better than what we are feeling in that moment. And so we will grasp for things that bring a sense of relief from the burden. We will grasp for things that give us some kind of ground to stand on again when we're struggling to find it. And there's something that's really good and right about that. When, when sin reveals our inability and our desperation, the burden of that is meant to, over and again, drive us to Jesus. It's meant to drive us to throw ourselves upon and cling to the mercy of God. But it's in those moments that we're also more likely, more susceptible to believe lies, to believe counterfeit gospels, which in reality are not good news at all. 
Like for one, that we need to now, because we're burdened by our sins, earn grace back, earn favor from God back. In Ephesus, false teachers were forbidding marriage and they were forbidding eating certain kinds of food as a pathway of self-salvation. And likewise, when you and I find ourselves in places burdened by sin, there will be voices around us that offer a thousand different plans to rescue ourselves by doing more, by doing better. It's grit, perhaps, but it's not grace, and therefore it is no gospel. Or on the other hand, a different kind of counterfeit gospel will attempt to minimize or do away with completely the burden of sin, to alleviate that cheaply or lightly or without cost. Why so guilty? Why so burdened by that? It's not that big a deal. God forgives. We know that God forgives. So you don't really have to deal with those things or actively fight against the sin that you see in your life. It's cheap grace with no subsequent call to grit to actually fight the sin, and therefore it's also no gospel at all. What and who we listen to in the vulnerable moments like this of our lives matters. And equally important, and lots of implications for community life with each other here, what we say to each other in those moments when each other are vulnerable matters. It's an opportunity to become firmly rooted in the love and the grace and the truth of God. It's an opportunity also for people to be led astray. And so for, and for all the, the good intent, I haven't been a pastor for all that long, but in my years of being a pastor, for all the good intent, there's just lots of bad advice and bad counsel out there in these moments when people are vulnerable. If you've been part of this church for any period of time, um, hopefully you would agree with this. You would know that I'm not an alarmist or like a doomsdayer. Uh, I've never bought like an underground bunker or like a, a condo in like the Dakotas or something like that. But Hear me when I say this. There are today, verse 13, evil people and imposters who deceive and are being deceived. Imposters often teach lies because they believe those lies themselves. But even so, even if the intent of an imposter is not overtly malicious, never assume that everything you hear under the banner of spirituality or religion or even Christianity is faithful. Never assume that. Don't be naive. Be hopeful. Don't be naive. Like Janus and Chambres, these, ma- these magicians uh, who opposed Moses in Egypt, and we read about that back in Exodus. There have always been, there are today, and until Jesus comes again, there will always be those who oppose the truth. Ultimately, Paul says, they will fail. They will not get far. But this is why in our day-to-day experience of real life, we need gospel-shaped grit. We need not only to know the truth, but to persist and to abide in it. If we are looking for an easy life, if we are looking for a quick solution to the problems that we face in our lives, if we're looking to a silver bullet answer to the difficulty of life, we will not make it. We will not make it. So second, how do we get grit? If that's why we need it, how do we get it? And Paul here points Timothy to two sources. His own example, Paul's own example, and the sacred writings of Scripture. So first, grit comes through imitating the example of those who have it. Grit comes from imitating the example of those who have it. Timothy is to follow Paul's example and nine different aspects of it. Did you hear the the repetition in verses 10 and 11 of the word my? 
My teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. He is pointing Timothy to follow his own example. And Paul's suffering in particular highlights his own grit. Suffering, we know from the accounts of Scripture about his life, suffering was a constant part of his life and ministry. And here he mentions only a couple examples from some years past in Antioch, in Iconium, and in Lystra. And those, those played out during his first missionary journey. He includes Lystra specifically because that's Timothy's hometown. That's Timothy's hometown. That's the city where Timothy's mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois taught him the gospel, where they acquainted him with the sacred writings of Scripture. It's also the place, that, and we read about this in Acts chapter 14, where Paul in Lystra is stoned and left for dead. Did Timothy witness that suffering? We don't know. Perhaps he did. It wasn't until Paul's second missionary journey that Timothy joined him and started to travel around with him. But no doubt, Timothy had heard about this example of Paul's suffering in his own hometown. And perhaps that was even part of what God used in Timothy's own conversion to become a Christian. Because we know that just that, that similarly, God used the stoning of an early deacon named Stephen as part of Paul's story of then coming to faith in Christ. So observing grit in someone else's life is very often used by God to produce grit in our own. And personally, I attest to that. It has been life-saving for me to have friends who are pastors, to have friends even among our elder team who are elders with me, who share stories about the kinds of things that we encounter and go through and share those stories with this complete sense of, I get it, I understand, I've been through that too. The same thing is true about reading biographies of Christians from generations gone by. And there's not a doubt in my mind that the combination of having friends that suffer as Christians and reading biographies like that, that I would not have made it. I would have bailed a long time ago if not for these things. A few years ago, in the midst of some just really hard days, personally, um, in the life of the church, trying to navigate hard things, I read a, a short biography of a man named Charles Simeon. And Charles Simeon was a pastor in England in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. For the first 12 years of his ministry, the wealthy and influential people of his church locked the pews. That was a thing then. You would lock the pews. They had doors on them. Uh, they basically prevented anyone from sitting down during the worship services. So anyone that would come, the few that would come, would have to stand in the back or in the aisles. For 12 years. 12 years. And, and God used the example of Charles Simeon's grit in those days to fuel some of my own. Paul here points to his own suffering because he knows that Timothy is going through the same. In fact, verse 12, not just Timothy, but all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. They will be persecuted. Think about this this morning. Putting himself forward as the example to follow. Paul is either incredibly arrogant and egotistical, a lover of self, swollen with conceit and pride, the things he's condemned in that list of 19 just, just a few minutes ago. Or, or, it's either that, or it really is this important to have human examples to follow. 
And it really is, is what I would say to you this morning. It really is that important to have human examples to follow. Why? Because you and I will learn from someone. You and I will learn from someone. We will model ourselves after someone. No one is a completely independent thinker. No one lives in a complete vacuum. A family friend of ours um, grew up in a, in a terribly dysfunctional home, terribly dysfunctional home life for her, all of her young years. And so years later, when she ended up with a family of her own, she modeled what it looked like to be a wife and a mother. She modeled their family's life after Leave it to Beaver because that was the, the best and, and one of the only examples she had access to and could think of at the time. We will look for some model to follow whatever that is. And this is why at Liberty Church we care so much about and we emphasize the relational nature of life in the church, the relational nature of discipleship and following after Jesus. It's why our rhythms of grace that we talk about include relational pursuit, and they include the, the 55 one-anothering commands of the New Testament. It's because discipleship can never be merely an imparting of information. It can never be just content transfer. Here's a few things to read. I hope you learn them. It's observing, it's emulating other Christians who embody, like Paul did for Timothy, their faith, their patience, their love, their steadfastness in real life. There are many implications and applications to this. Let me offer just one this morning. And it specifically is for those of you in the room who I kind of arbitrarily drew a line and a number, but who are over the age of 50. Those of you in the room over the age of 50, and here's what I'd say to you. If, if you have endured and persisted through life up to this point, if you still find in your heart a deep desire to love and to follow Jesus Christ, then you already have a good measure of the grit that we are talking about here this morning. And I'm not saying that you've arrived, and I'm not giving you permission to stop growing. Don't hear me say that at all. But by this point in your life, you have experienced enough suffering enough trial, enough of the difficulty and the decay of the world that if you were going to walk away from Jesus, you probably would have done so by now. And I say that to you for two reasons this morning. One is to affirm you and to encourage you. Thank God for you, friends, that you are here and present in this church is a gift and that you are still seeing in your heart, finding in your heart a love for Jesus after going through whatever life has entailed for you the last several decades of your life. Praise God for that. Be encouraged where you sit this morning. And second, I say that to you to charge you, to plead with you, to immerse yourself into the lives of the younger people here in this room. Over the years here at, at Liberty Church, there's been this disconnect that I've never quite been able to figure out exactly why it happens. But we have Younger Christians who express their desire to be mentored and cared for by older Christians. And we have older Christians who have expressed their desire to be present and show up and love younger Christians. And that seems to be two ingredients of a great recipe. It seems to be things that would fit really well together in relational discipleship. And yet, it's rare. It's rare to actually see that come together. There are a lot of variables, I'm sure, in that. So this is not a simplistic, reductionistic thing. But... One of the reasons, which I've heard repeatedly over the years, is that some of you in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, don't have a, a deep sense of confidence that you have something to offer. 
And what I would say to you this morning and definitively say to you this morning is you do. You do have something to offer. If for you to be a faithful Christian at this point in your life demonstrates a tested genuineness, a sincere faith, a grit that has held up. So be encouraged in that this morning and be confident in the grace and in the grit that God has worked into your life and then step boldly in that grace and in that grit. Step boldly into the lives of younger Christians who if they are going to endure, if they are going to find grit in their own lives, are going to need you to do exactly that. As important as imitating Paul's example will be, Timothy soon will no longer have Paul's example. This is the last letter that Paul writes. And so Paul adds a second and an even more important source to get and to grow in grit, and it's the sacred writings of Scripture. Verses 16 and 17, fairly well known. They're incredibly important words about the origin, about the sufficiency, about the usefulness of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So through human authors, God himself has spoken his very word. And for Paul, as he writes this, Scripture includes both the Old Testament and the collected sayings of Jesus and the accounts of Jesus' life. Back in 1 Timothy 5, Paul references both a text from the Old Testament and a teaching of Jesus, and he refers to both of them as Scripture. Paul's own writings, then, were quickly recognized as Scripture just a few years after this, as the Apostle Peter writes in one of his letters. Scripture makes us men and women of grit because, verse 15, it is able to make us wise for salvation. And so as he's thinking about the source of grit, Paul looks both backward and forward here pointing to his own example, pointing to the the heritage of faith that Timothy has from his own family. Those are past sources of grit. But Scripture is a present and a forward-looking source. So in the Christian life, as as, as believers, we, we think about salvation really in three different ways. Salvation is past, it's progressive, and it's future. We, we were saved through the finished work of Jesus. We are being saved progressively, ongoing work that God does in our lives. And ultimately, we will be saved. And it's this future sense of salvation that Paul has in mind when he writes this. He's saying, as we keep ourselves acquainted with and immersed in Scripture, it will be the means God uses to save us, to bring to completion that good work that he has begun in us. Scholar, author named N.T. Wright puts it this way, Scripture not only gives us true information about how our lives can be transformed, it will itself be part of that process. It's not just information about how this happens, not just recounting salvation is a thing and a truth. It actually becomes part of that process. How so? In both our doctrine and our practice. And so Paul writes here, in doctrine, it will teach us the truth and it will reprove lies. And in practice, it will correct us where we're wrong and it will train us in godliness. And in all of that, scripture is sufficient. It makes us competent. It makes us complete. It equips us, he writes, for every good work. And that's not to say that scripture is exhaustive and says everything about everything. It is to say that scripture contains within it the word of God in it in scripture, the word of God that is scripture, contains everything we need for life and salvation. That we don't need some additional 
special revelation of God. We don't need someone to show up and crack the code for us. Remember, we are already in the last days. The only thing that you and I are waiting for as, for, as a revelation from God is the Je- for Jesus to come again. There's so much research today and, re- and in recent decades that points to uh, a rampant biblical illiteracy in our day. So more than ever, more than ever in the history of the world, the sacred writings of Scripture are accessible, affordable, and completely taken for granted. We don't read it, we don't study it, we don't memorize portions of it, internalize it. And it might sound cliche for a pastor, for people in a church to talk about the importance of the Bible, the importance of Scripture. Um, For anyone who grew up in church, which is probably a few of you at least in the room, it's kind of a Sunday school answer, right? Sunday school answer, 98% of the questions that you ask in many Sunday school settings, you could answer with Bible study, a prayer, or just Jesus. Those are the answers to most of the questions. But you know who doesn't think talking about the Bible, treasuring the Bible is cliche? Christians who endure. Christians who persist in faith. Christians who make it in the Christian life. Because we know that if we're going to make it in the Christian life, we have to stand on something that is so much more stable than ourselves and how fickle we are. And even as great as the examples of other people are, they're people like us. They're fallible like us. We need something more solid, something more solid than the examples of other people. And Scripture is that foundation to stand on. Christians who finish the race are Christians who treasure Scripture. They immerse themselves in it. And doing so fuels even more grit. And Paul is convinced of this. He was convinced that that through Scripture, the people of God would be complete, would be equipped for every good work, everything that God would put before them, that they would be ready for it. So let us never take the Bible for granted. This book, as we say every week as we open it, the book that we love, read it, study it, memorize it, Do that individually as you have opportunity. Do that with each other. Because it is breathed out by God, it is not just a recounting of what salvation is. It is God's means, one of his means, to your ultimate salvation. It is the source of the grit that you will need to get there. In the face of difficulty and decay in the world, and with this guarantee of persecution and suffering, you and I need grit. And we will get it by following the example of those who have it. We will get it by immersing ourselves in the sacred writings of Scripture. But even through those means, we will only get it by the power and grace of God. In telling Timothy to follow his example, Paul is only, in in turn, following the example of Jesus. Paul is only an example of grit because he has followed Jesus' own conduct and teaching and aim and faith and patience and love and steadfastness and persecutions and sufferings. At the end of the day, grit comes by following an example because Jesus, who is our ultimate example, is also our Savior, the one whose own grit holds on to us as we pursue holding on to him. In pointing Timothy to the Scriptures, Paul is only sending Timothy to the same source that God has used to strengthen Paul and the same source that Jesus himself relied upon during his own trials in his life on this earth. When tempted, Jesus says, man did not live 
by bread alone, but by every word that comes from where? From the mouth of God, from the breathed out word of God, Jesus says. Christians are never content with the appearance of godliness. We are those dependent on the word of God, the power of God, to actually transform and to save us. God will be the one who makes us men and women of grit, who abide in Christ, who continue in what we have learned and believed. So by the example of others, by the scriptures, ultimately though, by his own power and grace, may Jesus Christ make you to stand in these last days of difficulty. May you be made wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. May you be complete. May you be equipped for every good work. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty and loving God, we bless you for truly the gift that it is of your word. It is a gift. It is a treasure for us. And so we pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you above all. Through Christ our Lord we pray.